Join me in the reading of God's word. We're reading from Luke 12, 4 through 12. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Courtney. My name is Jeff, good morning. And as you just heard, we're coming across another passage that's going to be really easy for me to teach. We're in a tough stretch in the book of Luke, in fact. Uh, we're in a turning point, really, chapter 12. Um, for the first 11 chapters, Jesus has been very much telling people who he is, and he's been backing it up by many signs and wonders and miracles. And then you reach chapter 12, and he really begins applying some pressure and kind of turning up the heat and really calling people to make a decision about him. And we're going to see some of those decisions that have been made, and we have been up to this point. But it's definitely a stretch, a turning point in this gospel. Um, but I think even though these words that you just heard in this passage from Jesus are hard words, you know, I trust that as we open our scriptures, there will be something in there for us today. And so uh, let's get started. I, I think most of you know that we've been in a season of uh, some uncertainty here at the Hallows Church. We've been, uh, we've been through a lot in a pretty short time, and it's been a time of many different emotions for many of us. And, and by, by God's grace, we are beginning to kind of find our way, I think, but the path forward is still not, still not entirely clear for us as the Hallows Church. And yet, here we are, right, together in this place for this reason to make much of, of Jesus as his people. And so I just want to say thank you. I'm grateful to God that you're all leaning in and really loving one another well and trusting Jesus with the future of his church. But if I can be real honest with you for a moment here this morning, the truth of the matter is this season has been, has been hard. It's been, it's been hard on me personally. It has weighed heavy on me for, for a while now. And as I look back over the past several months, I've had many mixed emotions, but I would say there have been two, two main emotions that I've been experiencing in all this. The first emotion that I've been experiencing has been fear and, and worry. Lately, fear feels like a shadow that I cannot seem to shake. Fears of, of various sorts. Fear 
And I would say guilt, too, that I am not doing for our church as much as I could be doing or, or perhaps should be doing. Fear of what's coming next, right? Fear that what tomorrow brings will be more than I am able to, to bear. Fear of, of failing, of failing our church, of failing you, but also a fear of you, of what you think of me, of what you think of my sermons, fear that you'll see through me, that I'm not really cut out for this sort of thing at all. Fear has been plaguing me and pursuing me in some unique ways this season, in large part because of the uniqueness of this season. But the second emotion I've been experiencing most of all during this season, interestingly, has been gratitude. Gratitude for God's mercy and his strength as he, as he helps me in the times that I am fearful and anxious. Again and again, when I feel when I find myself feeling inadequate and fearful, Jesus in his mercy, he, he is my shelter and he is my shepherd. He seems to always be there when I need him most to kind of calm me, to, to correct me and to, and to strengthen me. And so these have been my two main emotional states for a little while now, fear because of my own insufficiency and great gratitude because of God's ever-present sufficiency. And friends, I say these things this morning really as a confession. It's a confession of my own sin because I know that the fear that I allow to affect me in these ways is indeed sin. Fear fundamentally is a lack of trust in God and his promises. And in that way, fear is an expression of my own personal battle with, with unbelief. And so I say these things as a confession of my sin this morning, but I also say these things as a confession of faith because he is faithful. He has been faithful to, to free me from my, my misplaced fears as I, as I draw near to him and as I, as I trust him. And so this is the battle that has been ongoing in my mind and in my heart lately. And, and the reason I bring it up is because I know this battle is not unique I believe it's the very same battle each one of you are fighting too in one form or another, right? That is the battle to take God at his words, at his word without wavering in fear and in doubt. And so I hope you will allow me to, to preach a sermon to myself this morning, which I hope will help me to overcome my sin of fear by strengthening my heart in the words of Jesus. And since this battle is not unique to me. I hope you might listen in too. I hope you might find something here for your heart today too. This passage today, at least in the opening verses, it begins talking about fear. But then as we move through the passage, we're going to find, what we're going to find is that what this passage is really all about is how you and I can live without fear, how we can be fearless as, as Christians. Jesus tells us twice in the opening couple of verses what not to fear, and then he tells us twice what we should fear, in fact, what we must fear. The Bible has a lot to say about this. If you run a search of the word fear in your Bible, you'll find hundreds of occurrences. But in the Bible, just like in this passage too, uh, not all fear is, is the same. 
In fact, the Bible talks about two main types of fear. First, there's the fear of God, and second, there's the fear of everything else. The human heart is very prone to many misplaced fears, right? The fear of man is mentioned by Jesus here. That's a big one. But also the fear of many other things, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of the future. The list is very, very long. And most of our deepest fears have to do with losing that which is most important to us in this life, right? Our family and our friends, our, our reputation, our, our health or our wealth, and our very, our very lives. And at times, for some, these fears can become uh, crippling. But Jesus says they don't need to be. And he, in fact, he says they, they should not be. When it comes to these kinds of fears, the Bible tells us, in fact, that they're, they're a lie. They're slavery and they're sin. And we need to see them for what they are. You may have heard it said that in the Bible there are 365 occurrences, one for each day of the year telling us not to be afraid, fear not. I'm not sure if that number is exactly or entirely accurate, but the point is the same nevertheless. Our God does not want us to be fearful in this life or of this life. In fact, fearlessness is one of the main points of this passage. Twice, Jesus says, don't be afraid, And then the rest of the passage is really his explanation for for why that is and how that can be. And very interestingly, what we're going to see is that in order to be free from the wrong types of fear, there needs to be one right type of fear that is guiding us and even gripping us in in our lives. Jesus says in verse 5, I will show you the one to fear. Don't fear people or anything Uh, or anything they can do to you. Don't fear situations or circumstances. Don't fear the future. Don't fear even death, he says. God is the one you need to fear, Jesus says. Fear him who has authority over your eternal soul. Jesus is being very blunt here. Verse 5, he says, Fear the one who has the power to cast people into hell after death. Very very blunt, and according to the Bible, very true. Jesus is reminding us here of something the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, and he's actually going to show us, what he's going to show us is that a fear of the Lord is what we need more than anything else if we're ever to be freed from all of these other fears in our lives. And so the fear of the Lord, let's talk about what this is. The Bible certainly does. This kind of fear is a good kind of fear. It's the right kind of fear because it's a fear that can stand up to all of our other other fears. Listen to a couple of things the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. First, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and awareness. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied and will not be visited by harm. And so this fear of the Lord, we're told, it can lead to knowledge, to to wisdom, to, to life, to rest, 
uh, to satisfaction, right? That, that sounds pretty good. How, but how can a, a fear do all that? What kind of fear are we talking about? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? I would say absolutely yes. Jesus could not be any more clear in this passage. Every person on this planet, if you read what the Bible says and you take it even remotely seriously, you should be terrified of the God of the Bible. He is described as a consuming fire, as a holy and righteous God with a holy hatred for sin. And your life and my life, they are, they are riddled with sin, whether you know it or not, whether you care to admit it or not. If you think you may be okay with God because you're a pretty good person, the Bible says you're not good. It says no one is good, not one. It says we've all sinned and the wages of sin is death, condemnation and death. And that word condemnation, it really means separation. Separation from God forever. That is something to be feared, Jesus says. That is what the Bible calls hell. Martin Luther called this sort of fear servile fear, which is the fear of being punished, punished for the many wrong things you've done, punished for the many right things that you haven't done, that you've failed to do. And servile fear is not necessarily bad. At times, Jesus uses this. This sort of fear draws people to Jesus. But the Bible teaches us that the gospel in every way is intended to move us beyond this sort of servile fear into another sort of fear altogether. You see, the fear of God is different for those who are in Christ and those who are not. In fact, the fear of God for those who are in Christ are, is, is not really about being afraid at all. There is still certainly a reverence and a respect to be sure. There's still an awareness that he is holy and great and we are not. And that reality is serious, but it's all different now because of the gospel. Luther refers to the second kind of fear as, as filial fear. And that word filial has to do with being sons and daughters. It's a familial term like that. Filial fear refers to the sort of fear that a young child has for his or her parent. Think of a young boy who feels tremendous adoration and, and admiration and awe for his father and who, who deeply wants to, uh, deeply desires to delight his father. This child loves to obey his father, not because he's afraid of being punished by his father, but because he doesn't want to displease or disappoint his father, right? Because he understands that his father is the very source of his security and his, his love. And you see, once you've put your faith in the gospel, the fear of the Lord doesn't have so much to do with fear at all. It doesn't have to do with being afraid. It actually has to do with being amazed and astonished and, and assured this is what it means as a Christian to have a healthy, filial fear of your God. And friends, when you fear God rightly like this, you don't have to fear God at all or, or anything else at all. 
Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And Jesus here, he's going to spend the rest of this passage explaining to us kind of how this works. He's going to give us a a very beautiful sort of Trinitarian explanation of how the gospel moves you into this sort of filial fear of the Lord and how this filial fear of the Lord can be a fear that actually frees us from, from all our other fears. And the first thing Jesus starts to explain here is how the gospel, how it moves a person from being under the condemnation of God, which he just mentioned in verse 5, to being under the kindness and care of God, in the, in the care of the Father. Verses 6 and 7, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. And so how in the world can Jesus in back-to-back verses go from talking about the fearfulness of God who sends people to hell to the tenderness of God who cares even for the sparrows? How can he turn such a sharp corner like that in a single verse? Well, Jesus, I think, can turn that sharp corner there because that's exactly what the gospel does. There is a, a... That is the the movement of the gospel, right? A very sharp and very decisive movement from from a place of condemnation to to a place of care, to a person of care, to a, a father who is kind and caring. Sparrows, they were little tiny birds that poor people caught in nets back then. And they would they would pluck them, they would skin them, they would roast them, and they would eat them like little snacks. They were cheap and they were not very good to eat. Nobody cared about sparrows except the poorest of the poor because that's all they had. So if there was anything that you might think God wouldn't bother himself about, it might be sparrows. But Jesus says not one of them is forgotten in in God's sight. Not one of them falls to the ground without God knowing, without the Father's consent, it says in the account in the Gospel of Matthew. And so the father knows every hop of of every sparrow, Jesus says. And if the father knows about sparrows, he knows about you. How much more valuable to him are you, Jesus says. And then Jesus continues talking about the tender care of the father. He says in verse 7, he he says the father knows even the number of hairs on your head. He He knows you like that. Now that number is far easier to calculate for some people than others. But the point, I think, is that he doesn't have to count or calculate anything. He doesn't have to learn it or tally it up. He knows it, and he knows you because he's God. He knows you inside and out, and the most remarkable thing is that he loves you and cares for you anyways because of of Jesus. Another reason we know that he cares is that Jesus tells us to to go to him and to, to call him Father. This means that your God is not distant or detached. He's not uninvolved or uninterested. He is your your Abba Father, your your Papa. And he is eager for you to to see him in this way. If you want an extraordinary personal relationship with God, if you want to be freed from 
the fears that have been festering in your life. You have to settle this in your heart, this, this family status that you've been given in, in the gospel. He is your Abba Father, and that settles a lot of things. It settles a lot of fears and anxieties. It settles your, your need to belong. In fact, every time you pray, Father, it means you're not lost in the crowd. It means you're his child, and it means he cares. And then next, Jesus tells us kind of how you get there. He tells us how this happens, how a person can come under the kindness and care of the Father because it doesn't just happen automatically. Jesus is going to show us how the gospel moves a person from a place of fear to a place of family. It's going to show us how the gospel moves you from being under the condemnation of God to under the care of God, the tender care of the Father. And he says in this passage, he says it happens a certain way. It happens, happens by a confession. It happens by the confession of the Son. And you see it in verse 8. It's not automatic, but it's not complicated either. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. And that word, that word acknowledge, it's often also translated confess. So whoever confesses me on earth, Jesus says, I will acknowledge them in heaven. Now, confess, to confess, means really to acknowledge what is true, right? To kind of own up to what is true. And it also often means to admit that you were wrong. And the gospel certainly requires each of those things. And so if you want to move in this direction of being part of God's family, coming under the care of the Father, Jesus says there's one way, and there's only one way you can get there, and that is through me. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, No one, nobody comes to the Father except through me. No one comes under the tender care of the Father except through Jesus, he says. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, If you confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there it is. That's all there is to it. The gospel doesn't have to be complicated. It's a free gift of grace. It's not something you earn or deserve. It's something you confess with your mouth and something that you believe in your heart. It's admitting you were wrong and owning up to what is true, right? What, what is true about Jesus, what is true about his person and his work and about his words and have, have you done that? As long as you've done that, Jesus says you've not only come under the care of the Father, you've also come under the, the forgiveness of the Son. Confess my name and believe in your heart and you will be forgiven, Jesus says in verse 10. But as Jesus begins talking about forgiveness in verse 10, he says something here that we really need to, to talk about. He says something that has 
haunted people, many people, for a long time. Look again at verse 10. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so this particular verse, it disturbs and disorients some people, and, and I suppose it should. A lot of people want to know, is there an act or a, a deed, something so profound, so dark, so deeply wrong and sinful that it really can't be forgiven even, even by God? Verse 10 seems to say yes. Jesus seems to say quite clearly that there's something you can do, there's something that is so significant that it will not be forgiven even, even by God. And of course, our natural response to this is, is we want to know straight away what it is. What does that mean? What is this unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about? And we will get there in a moment, but I first want to step back and ask, what, what is Jesus saying about forgiveness in general here in this verse? Because what he's saying is, 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 is remarkable. Look again at verse 10a, the first half of this verse. Look at the incredible willingness of Jesus to forgive. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. It's easy for us to, to kind of jump ahead to the second half of the verse, but this is an amazing statement by Jesus. He is referring to himself, first of all, as the Son of Man, which he did quite a lot. And the Son of Man was a, a figure in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, which, in which you have this divine figure coming, coming in the clouds. He's, he's leading the hosts of heaven. And so this Son of Man is, is a sort of heavenly king. He's a a figure of divine royalty in a sense. And one of the things we know about ancient royalty in Jesus' time was that the honor and the dignity of, of royal kings was taken very, very seriously. The king's guards went to incredible lengths to protect the, the honor and the dignity of the king. You may recall, you actually see some of this in the, in the, in the book of Esther, right, with the king of Persia. And what you see there is you couldn't just stroll into the king's presence if he didn't first call for you. You could be killed for coming into the king's presence uninvited. And then once you were, once you were in his presence, you'd better, you'd better watch yourself. You'd better be careful. You would certainly never, never speak a word against the king. Your speech would be filled with praise and, and reverence. You weren't even supposed to look him in the eye. And when you left, you couldn't turn around. When you left, you had, to kind of, you had to kind of back out of his presence. And so to speak a word against a powerful king in that time was a deadly matter. It, it would not end well. But here is Jesus. Here comes Jesus, the, the king of kings. He shows up saying, I'm not like that. I'm not, I'm not like human kings. Say whatever you want against me. I'm not bothered. I won't be offended. I'll even, I'll even forgive you. Here's Jesus on the, on the one hand making claims beyond what any human king has ever claimed, right? He says, I forgive sins. He says, I'm the son of man. He says, I'm God. He said, I'm, I'm going to judge the heavens and the earth. He makes all of these incredible claims. But what you never see with Jesus is even a hint or, of attitude or arrogance. Jesus never gets offended. 
It seems like so many people these days are so easily offended. Have have you noticed that? Jesus doesn't get offended. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He says, he, he, he never says to anybody, do you realize who you're talking to? And the proof of this you see clearly, don't you, on the cross. Not only were people speaking against Jesus on the cross, they were mocking, they were swearing and spitting and spearing him. They were driving nails into his hands. And what did Jesus say? He said, forgive them, Father. And so do you see how we go right past the first half of this verse? We're so worried about the second half, we overlook the the first half. The first half says to us that in Jesus is an infinite willingness to forgive. There's, There's nothing he won't forgive. There's nothing he's not willing to forgive, even if you're killing him. He says, it's okay. I'm not offended. I'll still forgive you. Amazing. Amazing. And all the more reason then that we, when we get to the second half of this verse, that that we should take it seriously. The second half of this verse we need to talk about, we need to understand what it's teaching. It's teaching us on the one hand that God has an infinite desire and, and willingness to forgive. But on the other hand, it's nevertheless possible to put yourself outside of God's forgiveness. Now, there have been a lot of bad theories about the identity of the unforgivable sin. Those who might suggest it's murder or adultery are forgetting about King David, right, and others. Those who might say it's suicide would exclude Samson, who even made it into the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Those who say the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against God would exclude the apostle Paul, who in 1 Timothy chapter 1 self-identified as a former blasphemer of God before meeting Jesus and being, being forgiven by him. And so what is it then? What can it be that's so bad that even God won't, won't forgive it? Let's look again at verse 10. Let's try to unpack this together. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So first of all, what does it mean to to blaspheme? What does that word mean? To blaspheme basically means to speak against, to speak against God. And this immediately raises a question, I hope. Why would it be okay to speak against Jesus, but not okay to speak against the Holy Spirit? Why would one be forgivable and the other not? Isn't that what Jesus seems to be saying in verse 10? Now, this gets even more interesting and more puzzling when you look at the parallel passages in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to how it's recorded there in Matthew chapter 12, Verse 31, he said, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So, okay. Is anyone confused yet? Is Jesus contradicting himself? In verse 31 there, it seems like Jesus 
should have said something like, almost every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except this one. But that's not what he says. He seems to say, or he does say, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. There's the first statement. But then in the second part, he seems to try to uh, kind of take something away. He says, except, except for the blasphemy against the Spirit, which will not be forgiven. Jesus, you find him often saying things in peculiar and puzzling sorts of ways like this. And I don't think he's contradicting himself as much as he wants to really get us to think. And as we do that, as we think about this carefully, we can, I think, begin to make some sense of what he's saying. But we do need to, I think, step back for a moment, consider a couple of things that I think will allow us us to get there. First, we need to consider our context here in the book of Luke. We're here in the beginning of chapter 12. Of course, stuff has been going on. A lot has been happening. A lot was happening in Luke chapter 11 over the past few weeks. For example, in Luke chapter 11, just a a short time ago, Jesus was again healing people in miraculous ways. And you may remember that the religious leaders, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they they were paying close attention to what he was doing as they had been all along. And you may remember they had... They had reached a conclusion about Jesus. They had reached this sort of final conclusion about him, about about where he was tapping into all this power he had. And they also began telling the people in the crowd what their conclusion was. Do you remember what it was? After seeing all that that Jesus had done, these religious leaders, they concluded that the the power Jesus was displaying was, was not from God, it was from Satan. It was not divine, it was demonic. They, they attributed the power of Jesus not to God's spirit, not to the Holy Spirit, which is where his power was coming from, but to a demonic spirit, to an evil spirit. And then you have Jesus in today's passage, just a short time, short time later, talking about how it's unforgivable to, to, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's safe to say these two scenes are connected. And another reason we know they're connected is because in the accounts of Matthew and Mark, they're they're directly connected. One immediately follows the other. In other words, in Matthew and Mark, the Pharisees, they accuse Jesus of being demonic, and Jesus immediately begins talking about the the unforgivable sin. In Luke, there's a bit of a a short gap in between the two for, for some reason. But all of this helps us. This tells us that it is the Pharisees and the scribes who Jesus seems to be saying have committed this unforgivable sin. And so, okay, is that our answer? Is it what the Pharisees said? What they said was that the power of Jesus was coming from a demonic spirit rather than from the Holy Spirit. Is that the blasphemy against the spirit that is unforgivable. I don't think so. I don't think it is. It doesn't seem to be something they said that was unforgivable. Otherwise, why would Jesus say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven? It doesn't seem to be what they said that was the real issue. Now, the second thing we want to consider here, I hope we'll consider here, is that that's going to help us is we need to consider 
what the Bible teaches. We need to be clear on what the Bible teaches about the person and the work of, of the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit's role, his job, so to speak, fundamentally is to, to lead people to the truth about Jesus, to show them the truth, to, to help people see it and, and sense it. We're told in John chapters 14 to 16, the Holy Spirit reveals. He is the revealer of spiritual truth. We're told there that he is our teacher. He teaches us internally speaking about Jesus. We're told he bears witness about Jesus in our hearts. We're told he convinces us and he convicts us that we're sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. And we're told the Holy Spirit leads us. He leads us toward repentance and faith and confession of the name of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if you're a Christian, that's how it happened. It wasn't only your doing. The New Testament says that we are unable to get there without his help. We are unable to respond to Jesus without cooperating with the Holy Spirit and being sensitive to his guidance and his promptings in our lives. And third, one final helpful item, the word blaspheme. As you look at the semantic range of this word, you find that it can mean not only to speak against God, which is its, definitely its most common meaning, but the, but the word blaspheme can also mean to revile God or to reject God. And so if we take these three things into consideration, let's Let's return to our question. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven? The Pharisees and the scribes, they, they spoke against the Holy Spirit. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit in this way, but it wasn't what they said that was unforgivable. Rather, what was unforgivable had not to do with the words that came out of their mouths. It had to do with what was going on in their, in their hearts. It had to do with what had become inside of them a fixed and settled rejection of what the Holy Spirit was trying to show them about Jesus. In spite of all they had seen Jesus do, they were so resistant to the revealing work of the Holy Spirit, they were so fixed in their rejection of Jesus, their, their hearts had become so hardened that they were, they were beyond the point of repentance. And I think Jesus knew it, and I think that's why he said what he said. I do think it's important to understand with this unforgivable sin, it's not so much that forgiveness is withheld by God, rather it is, it is never sought in, in the first place. A heart can, be so, can become so at odds with God's spirit that it can become incapable of genuine repentance. Okay, here, here is a sort of a summary, a, a takeaway. There is no particular sin or deed or word or action that in itself is unforgivable or beyond God's grace. The Bible teaches that again and again. The only thing that is unforgivable is a hardened and permanent rejection of the truth about Jesus. That is the unforgivable sin. And so as long as a person responds to the work of the Holy Spirit in 
leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus, any sin and every sin is forgivable and will be forgiven. But if a person resists the work of the Holy Spirit, rejects the truth about Jesus, and refuses to repent and believe, then, then no sin is forgivable. In fact, in that case, every sin is, is unforgivable. So we spent a fair amount of time on that because I think we needed to, but one final point, I'll be brief, famous last words. So we've talked about how the gospel frees us as Christians by moving us under the care of the Father and under the forgiveness of the Son. Let's finish up by talking a little bit more about this Holy Spirit, how the gospel also brings with it the the comfort of the Spirit. And so we talked about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is our revealer, but he is far more than that. We just talked about him in a sort of academic, from an academic standpoint to help us interpret verse 10. But let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a few moments in very practical and very personal terms because the Holy Spirit is indeed very practical and very personal for us and to us as Christians. In the final two verses of today's passage, Jesus says you're going to face many hard times in this life, sometimes because of me. And he says you're going to be prone to many misguided and misplaced fears in your life. But then look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, what does he say? He says, don't worry, don't don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he's he's getting at what he's getting at is the Holy Spirit will provide for you what you need, when you need it, and and how you need it. So don't, don't worry, don't be afraid, he says. And so how remarkable that God has not left us to ourselves to, to face this life alone. Jesus is reminding us that the Holy Spirit is with us and he is within us in, in real time, in, in real relationship. And the Bible makes clear that the Holy Spirit is far more than just a teacher. In John chapter 14, Jesus uses the Greek word paraclete when referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's often, that word is often translated as as helper, and, and he is a helper. But the word paraclete is a much richer word. It's a very uh, rich word with a lot of rich meaning, a rich range of meaning. And I want to I want you to hear some of the other meanings that this single Greek word conveys. Paraclete means helper, but listen to what else it means. It also means comforter. It means counselor. It means supporter and strengthener. It means advisor and advocate and ally and and friend. He is not only a teacher and a revealer, he is all these things too. And so are you looking to him in these ways? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to be all of these things for you? He can and he, he will if you will, if you will let him. And I hope you know the Holy Spirit is also our connection, isn't he? He's our connection to the Father and the Son. He's our experiential, our relational connection to the Father and to the Son. And and this is why, this is how we have the resources to face anything this life throws at us. Living under the kindness and care of the Father, living in the forgiveness of of the Son, 
as we are led and loved in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.